You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. In the early church, when they would gather, they would greet one another in this way. The guy would say, he is risen, and the church would respond with, he is risen indeed. So we're going to, you guys sort of caught on here, but for those of you that don't know, and it's sort of like, that's a weird church thing. We're just joining in with what the church has done for thousands of years. If you're an overflow, I want you to join in with this. We got a couple of rooms of overflow this hour. So if you're in there, I'm going to say he is risen. I want you to say he is risen indeed. Ready? He is risen. He is we're so grateful that you're here with us today. My name is Pastor Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Antioch, and we're honored uh, by your presence here today. It, it, we're always humbled Sunday after Sunday that we get to gather together with God's people, and we never take this gathering for granted. Um, this is a special day. Um, it's Resurrection Sunday. It's a great Sunday to gather, but Resurrection Sunday happens every uh, Sunday because Jesus is still alive, and this is a special time um, to be together. So thank you for being here today. One of the worst feelings in the world, and I would say most of us in the room have probably experienced this feeling at some point in our lives, is the feeling of homesickness. Uh, our two oldest sons went off to college this year for their freshman year of college, and we've experienced some of that, right? Get those phone calls from Ohio, and you can hear a little bit of the quiver in the voice, which causes mom and dad's voice to quiver a little bit as well. Because not only are you experiencing the homesickness with them, even this weekend with my sons not being here, it's just weird, right? There's just a sense in which something's missing even this weekend. But when you live with them through the homesickness, it takes you back to your days of college or when you experience that sense of homesickness in your own life. I'll remember, I'll never forget my dad dropping me off at college. My dad's not a crier. The only time I had seen him cry in my 18 years of life was when we watched Hoosiers. If you've seen the movie Hoosiers, right? He cried in that movie, but nothing else really caused him to cry. But he's dropping me off for college. And I remember that, you know, it's time. He's going to head back to Texas. I'm in Missouri. And he hugs me and just starts crying. And it was like, ah, dad, don't do this to me. You know, you never cry. But this feeling of homesickness is one in which wherever I am, something or someone is missing. That's what really homesickness is. Wherever I am in the world, something or someone is missing. The hard part about homesickness is when you experience it at a time when life is good and everything is going well. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a trip to Ecuador and it was like a friend invited a friend and they needed somebody else and I was a friend of the friend so I got to tag along on this trip and it was for Compassion International if you've ever heard of that ministry and so there was a group of guys that were and gals that were getting to go and meet the 
the child that they've sponsored. And it was a special moment. Though I wasn't a part of it, I was just sort of the third will that got to tag along with the trip. And it was neat to see the compassion feeding centers and see these guys get to meet and gals get to meet somebody they've supported for, you know, 10 years. It was, it was a special experience. Well, towards the end of that experience, they had planned that we were going to go whitewater rafting. And again, I'm just along for the ride. I don't really know what's going on. I'm just wherever they go, I go. So the night before we're supposed to go whitewater rafting, we get on a bus and we head up into the mountains of Ecuador. And as we go up into the mountains, we come to this beautiful resort and we pull in and it is, whoa, it's like, this is the most beautiful place I've ever been. And we go in and we have a meal in this beautiful area and they hand out the rooms and they'd messed up the room. So I got a room to myself that night in this beautiful resort. And I walk in and it's the largest room I've ever been in on a vacation in my whole life kind of thing. Like it has this front room that had a fireplace in it. Then you go around, it's got this king bed. I mean, it was just a beautiful room. You open the curtains and there's the mountains and these beautiful flowers. It's like, this is incredible. So stay the night there. The next morning we get up. We get on this charter bus and they take us two hours up the mountain. And we come to this, this like, I don't think this is a road, but this is where the charter bus is going. So you're going along and it comes to the end of this road. And it's like, either we're about to become a Netflix special here, or this is going to be a really awesome, you know, whitewater rafting experience. And we get out of the charter bus and they're like, hey, we're going to hike down the side of this mountain and we're going to go get in this river, one of the top rivers in the world, to whitewater raft. And so we slide basically, like we're covered in mud as we're going down the side of this mountain to get in the whitewater rafting. And here's the place where we got to put in at. And it was, it was that was the whole, like mountains, just beautiful, four, class four and five rapids, they said, when you go, like, make sure you don't fall out of the boat. Guess who was the guy that fell out of the boat? You know, we hit a rock and it just threw me up and I went flying out. And so it's sort of embarrassing. And I landed on my bum. So I was really embarrassed as well with that because it was bruised. And, but I was saved. John Mark pulled me out and everything's good. I'm here today. This is not a fake me. I, this is really me. I, I made it out, you know. But we go and a four or five hour whitewater rafting trip down this beautiful river. That night we're heading back to a different hotel because we'll fly out the next morning. I'm sitting in my room. And it was like, something's missing. Someone's missing. And here I just, it's been, been in this beautiful place, got to experience one of the neatest things in all of my life. And here at the end of the day, I've got homesickness in my heart. Why did I have homesickness in my heart? Because my wife wasn't with me. My kids weren't with me. I wanted, see, I could say like, look at this picture. I could FaceTime with them and say, look out the window here. But there was nothing like the smells. There was nothing like going down the side of that mountain. There was nothing like falling out of the boat, right? You can't explain that. But here I am in this beautiful place and this beautiful experience and yet there was a sense of homesickness in my heart as if something was missing, someone was missing. It was my wife and my family. When you think about our lives in general, isn't it odd that we experience homesickness? How can you experience homesickness when you finally make the varsity team that you've always wanted to be on? 
How can you experience homesickness when you finally get that part in the play that you've always wanted? And yet you get that part, you make the team, and yet there's still this sense in which something is missing. How can you get married and be married and still feel like in your heart something's missing? I thought marriage would take that away, right? But there's still in your heart something's missing. How can you have kids and then still feel that sense in which something is missing? How can you get your dream job and still feel like, ah, something's not right in my heart and my soul? How can your bank account get to a certain level and yet you can still feel this angst in your heart and your soul? Well, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, would say to us this. He would say, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Let, Let me read that to you again. I want you to think about the thing that you think, if I just had that, I would be satisfied, or that thing that you thought would satisfy you that hasn't satisfied you. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. In the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's written by a guy by the name of Solomon that the Bible says is one of the wisest men who ever lived. And this book of Ecclesiastes is about really the vanity of life, riches, relationships, all this kind of stuff. You can get all this stuff, but there's still that missing thing in your heart. And in Ecclesiastes chapter three, in verse 11, Solomon says that God has put eternity into man's heart. That God has put eternity into man's heart. Because you and I were made in the image of God and God is eternal. Eternity is on our hearts. So homesickness tells us that we were made for something more. That we were made for someone more. So how do we deal with this homesickness that we all experience in our life. Well, I want you to open your Bibles today to the book of John. If you have your phone and you got the Bible app on there, scroll up, you'll find the book of John. It's in the New Testament. We're going to spend our time mainly today in John chapter 14. If you don't have your Bible or your phone on your or Bible on your app, you're, you're welcome to just follow along on the screens as well. John And this is really strategic of the guys who put scripture together. John is written by a guy by the name of John, all right? No trickery there. John is the one that wrote this story of Jesus' life. Um, John was an eyewitness to Jesus' life. So John was a part of Jesus' life. He saw Jesus, the three years of his ministry, he saw Jesus get crucified. He saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus be buried and and come back to life. He saw Jesus after that. He spent time with Jesus. So John has had a lot of experience, a lot of time with Jesus. And his book, basically records the biography of Jesus' life. And what John does that is different from other authors of scripture is that John gives us a lot of the words of Jesus. So my Bible will have what they call the red letter edition. What that means is if it's in red, Jesus said it. And so if you read John, you'll find there's a lot of red letters because John's just saying these are the words that Jesus said. 
When you come to John chapter 13 through 17, where you're coming at in the story of Jesus is that in a couple hours, Jesus is going to be crucified. So he's really close to the end of his life. Like it's about to come where he's going to die on the cross for our sins. And as he's getting closer to that, he spends time with some of his closest friends. These guys were known as the disciples. There were 12 of them. And Jesus is spending time with them and sharing with them his heart and what's to come. And he's just preparing them for what they're going to experience after he comes back to life and he ascends back into heaven. And while Jesus is talking to them in John chapter 13 in verse 33, Jesus says this to them, little children. Now we read that and think, well, that's sort of a derogatory way to talk to grown men, you know, call them little children. But this was an endearing way that Jesus spoke to his disciples. He says, little children, yet a little while and I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So this was just one sentence that Jesus said in the midst of many things that he is saying to the disciples. He says, where I am going, you cannot come. He says a few more things. And then Peter pop, pipes up here and says, Lord, where are you going? He didn't hear anything else that Jesus said. The only thing he heard that Jesus said was, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Peter, he's the kind of guy that just speaks and then he'll think about it after he says it. He just goes right with, for, for Jesus and says, where are you going? Like, come on, man, stop, stop talking in this like secret language. Just tell me where you are going. Jesus says back to Peter, where I'm going you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterward. Now, there's a couple of things that Jesus could be saying to Peter here. One, he could be saying to Peter, you're going to follow me eventually and that you're going to die just like I'm going to die, right? That Peter, we know, will eventually die for the cause of Christ. So he could be saying, you're not going to die for me right now, but you will eventually die for the sake of me and the gospel. He could have been saying that. Another idea is that when Jesus says, you will follow me afterward, he could be talking about Jesus going and ascending back to his father and that eventually Peter will be with Jesus in heaven. So there sort of could be this double idea, this double meaning here going on with you will, you're not gonna follow me now, but you will follow me. But this is the thing they're stuck on. The disciples were stuck on where is Jesus going? They had this sense of homesickness, like something was missing, something is not right. And so after Jesus addresses Peter here, they have a little bit more dialogue. In John 14, verses one through six, Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to comfort them because he knows that their heart is uneasy. Their heart is unsettled. There's a sense of homesickness in them. And so Jesus turns to his disciples after talking with Peter and says in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus says to his disciples whose hearts are feeling this homesick feeling, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. He's saying, set your heart at ease. Stop being troubled. Today, 
we would say, relax. That's what he's saying. Listen, listen, guys, relax. Why can they relax? Well, he says it. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, you've been believing in God. You've been trusting in God. And now you've watched my life for these three years. Now you can trust me because I am God as well, right? Like you've trusted God, the father, you've been trusting, you put your confidence in him. Now you can put your confidence in me. How can they relax in this moment? Because they're putting their confidence in Jesus. They're putting their trust in him. As you believed in God, he says, believe also in me. I want you to know today that following Jesus is a faith journey. Say that. It's a trust journey. It is you and I trusting God, trusting that Jesus will not only take care of us after this life, but Jesus will take care of us in this life as well. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 11:6, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He says, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. To follow Jesus is to trust what he said and what he did. Do you trust what Jesus said and what he did? Right. See, without faith, without this kind of faith, it's impossible to please God. And so Jesus is bringing that up to them. He says, relax, fellas, believe in God, have confidence in me as well, right? You've believed in God, now believe in me. Then look at what he says in verses two through four. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus is now making it plain to them where he is going. He is going to his father's house. Now, this is not Joseph, his earthly father's house. This is his heavenly father. So he's saying, I'm going to my heavenly father's house and I'm gonna prepare a place for you there and I will come back and get you someday so that where I am, you may be also. The language that Jesus is using here is of a Jewish wedding. So we read it and sort of, okay, I get it. He's going to his father's house. He's building a room, all that kind of stuff. The disciples, when Jesus would be saying this, they would have been picturing a Jewish wedding ceremony because here's sort of the three parts of a Jewish wedding ceremony. The first part was the arrangement of the marriage, right? We don't experience this today, right? But back in Bible times and in Jesus' time, they had arranged marriages. Some of us were like, that would be nice. Others of us like, that sounds like a horrible idea, right? But they would when their kids were small, a a dad of a boy and a dad of a girl would come together and they would say, we're going to arrange this marriage. And so they would sort of make a, what they refer to as a bride price, right? And they would go back and forth, like you can have 20 cows and, you know, this much of the grain and that kind of stuff. And be like, nah, she's worth more than that, right? 30 cows. I was listening to a pastor and he said he was recently over in Israel And some guy came up to him and said, I will give you 20 camels for your daughter. You know, he's like, hmm, maybe I should do that. Uh, 
So it's still even maybe happening in Israel today, right? But so they would arrange this idea of, of marriage. And then when their son and daughter would get to a marriageable age, which this is gonna blow your mind, but it's like 13 to 15 years old, right? If you have a 13 to 15 year old, you're like, ah, like that sounds like a horrible idea. But when they would get to about 13 to 15 years old, they would actually have a wedding ceremony. So the groom and the dad would come to where the, the daughter and the dad were and they would exchange vows. They refer to this as the betrothal process. Although they wouldn't consummate their marriage, they would have vows and they would have this wedding ceremony and they would basically be legally married. Although it would be like our engagement process today. So they would be betrothed. And here's what would happen. In this moment, the groom or, or the man would go back to his father's house and he would build a room onto his father's house. Okay, so it'd take him about a year because this was communal family living. Like you would have four or five generations under one roof. And so they, he would go back and he would build a room for his bride. And they would make a room, he would build it while the bride is back at home preparing herself for the return of the groom. Mm -hmm. So she's getting ready knowing that in about a year, the groom's gonna come back. And when he comes back, I wanna be ready because I'm excited about going to the room that he's building in, at his father's house. So this is the word picture that Jesus is giving to the disciples. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a room for you. And just like you've seen that's happened in wedding ceremonies, eventually the groom will come back and they'll be married and they'll have a party. And then they will, the, the bride will go with the groom to their house. So why is Jesus making this point about heaven in this moment of uncertainty? In this moment that they're feeling like something's missing, someone's missing, something's not right. Why would Jesus take three verses here and say, I just, just so you know, I'm going to my father's house, I'm building a room and I'll come back and get you. Why would Jesus do that? Because he wants us to understand that this life is not the end, but it is simply the beginning. That his disciples were made for something more. That eternity has been put on their hearts and they were made for something more. Listen to how Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. He says it this way, A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of one's death is better than the day of their birth. Let me read that again. That doesn't commute right? Compute in our minds. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. How can that be true? Then he goes on in verse two. He says, it's better for us to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Here's what he's saying. It's better for us to go to a funeral than to go to a birthday party. Red lights ought to be going off in our mind. Like that sounds like a horrible idea. Who loves to go to a funeral? Birthday parties are way funner. Why does he say this? Listen to what Solomon says. For this is the end of all mankind and the living 
will lay it to heart. What Solomon is saying is, you and I were made for something more. And this feeling of homesickness in our hearts is evidence of that reality. So when we come to the day of death, when we go to a funeral, what that does is it brings that reality in front of us. This is why Jesus talked so much about eternal life. The most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life, everlasting life. You were made for something more. And the sense of homesickness in your heart is evidence that this is not all there is, that eternity has been put on your heart and you were made for another world. In John 14, then back there in verse 5, Thomas pipes up. And we know Thomas to be doubting Thomas. He just had this sort of disbelief toward Jesus, even though he'd spent three years with Jesus. And I, I love that, that the Bible doesn't hide people that doubted Jesus, right? Even one of his closest followers had a little bit of suspicion about, is this the real deal? In fact, after Jesus rises from the grave and and He's meeting his disciples and they're seeing him for the first time. In John chapter 20, in verse 24, we see Thomas. He's one of the 12. He's called the twin. He wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the disciples are saying, man, we've seen the Lord. Like they're super pumped. We, we saw him. He, he has risen from the grave. And this is Thomas's response to these guys. Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and the place my finger and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side I'll never believe I mean this is a guy who spent 3 years with Jesus now all of his buddies are saying he's alive and he's like nah not for me I want to put my finger in his nail holes on his hand in verse 27, it says, Jesus comes, and you need to read that because it's pretty cool because Jesus, the door is locked, but somehow Jesus gets in the room, pretty, pretty cool. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And listen to what Thomas says to him in verse 28, my Lord, my God. He's like, this is for real. He has risen from the grave. And listen to what Jesus says to Thomas. This is for us today. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Blessed are those who haven't put their hands in Jesus' nails or their, their finger into the nails in Jesus' hands. Blessed are those who haven't seen that and yes, yet believe. So if you believed in Jesus, you believe that he is alive and living, then you're blessed because you believed without seeing. You have confidence and trust without even seeing Jesus. Back to John 14 and verse five, Thomas says to him then, this is that Thomas doubting Jesus. Lord, we do not know where you are going, all right? Like Thomas must have zoned out when Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house or something, right? Because he's like, I don't know where you're going. And we've all been in conversations like that where it's like, even this week with Ruth, she was like, I said that to you. I was like, no, you didn't say that to me. I'm, she said, I'm 150% sure you said, I said, I'm 200% sure you didn't say, you know, we, so it's like, this is what's going on with Thomas. Like, Lord, we don't know where you're going. It's like, clearly he said, 
we're going to his father's house. Then he makes this statement, how can we know the way? So if, we, if I don't understand where you're going, Jesus, just sort of tell me the path. Tell me the way to get to where you're going to be after all of this. And Jesus in John 14 and verse 6 makes one of the most controversial statements in all of the Bible. But I would say to you, it's one of the most important statements in all the Bible. Because this statement separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. This is the difference maker right here. What Jesus is about to say makes all the difference in the world and in the world to come. John 14, 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. He is the only way to God. How do we deal with eternity being on our hearts? How do we deal with knowing we were created for another world? Jesus says the way that we deal with homesickness in our hearts is through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Listen, there are not multiple ways to be right with God. Say that. There is one way, and it is Jesus. I will readily admit that being a Christian is very exclusive and that it is only through the person of Jesus Christ. I'll admit that. It is exclusive. It's only through the person of Jesus. But I want you to understand today, in its exclusiveness, it is also inclusive in that whosoever will may come. So yes, there is only one way to God, and it's through the person of Jesus Christ, but all are welcome to come. Say that. Thank you, Lord. Matthew chapter 8 and 9, I'd encourage you to go read it. Because what you see in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 is that the clean and the unclean come to, through Jesus. That those who are far from God come to Jesus. Those who think they're near to God, how do they get to God? Through the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, it is exclusive. It's only through Jesus And I know that is hard to hear in a pluralistic world where you're told you can get any way you want to, you can get to God. Just figure it out. It's very exclusive. It's through the person of Jesus Christ, but it's inclusive in that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The danger for some of you in the room today, those in our overflow rooms and those watching online is that you think you have to clean up your life to get to God. Did you hear what John 14, 6 said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you clean up your life, you can get to God. No, it didn't say that, did it? It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, you don't have to clean up your life. 
You don't got to get everything figured out and then come to Jesus and then come to God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, for by grace. You know what that word grace means? It means you get what you don't deserve. Grace is a good thing. For by grace, you're getting what you don't deserve. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. There's that word faith again. And it's not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. You come to Jesus. You come to God through the person of Jesus Christ. You don't have to clean yourself up. I thought about back in the day when I was in school, teachers would do this with quizzes every once in a while where they would put at the top of the quiz, they would say, make sure to read through all the questions before you start the test. You know, and you'd read through it. You'd flip it over, read through it, get to the bottom. And what would it say? If you've read all of the questions, you can turn the test in for an A. Some of you in the room, you're making it more complicated than it has to be. You don't have to take the test, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Stop trying to take the test. It's that simple. Just read the instructions and believe in Jesus. And you get a straight A. Why? Because Jesus' account is put to our account. Say that. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. But here's the danger for some others in the room is that when you hear this, that Jesus is the only way to God, your natural skeptic self says, well, that's narrow-minded and bigoted. This is why I don't like Christians, right? Because they're narrow-minded and they're bigoted and they, they think Jesus is, is the only way to God. And I, I want you to know, I, I hear you and I can see from your perspective why you think that way. But I want you to know, I didn't say this. Jesus said it. He's the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here, here's what my responsibility is. I am a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. I'm a beggar telling others I found the way to be right with God. And in the word it says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so I'm one beggar telling other beggars, here's where I found bread. Let's maybe think about it in this way. I think in this room, all of us have been touched by cancer in some way. Like whether we have experienced it in our family or we have friends. And what if I told you today that I had the pill that would cure people from cancer? And I, I had this pill and if people will take it, they will be healed from cancer. Would you say that I am narrow-minded and bigoted for saying there's only one way to be cured from cancer when I know that this pill will cure people from cancer? Well, I would say you probably wouldn't say I'm narrow-minded and bigoted because it's healing people from cancer. 
In, in fact, I think you would say I'm unloving and I'm downright hateful not to share the cure with people. It would be wrong of me to hold on to this cure when people are dying from cancer all over our country, all over the world. The right thing for me to do would be to share the good news that this pill can heal you from cancer. The same thing is true of Jesus' words in John 14, 6. It would be unloving of me to not share with you the greatest news in all of the world. It would be downright hateful of me to not let you know that you don't have to earn your way to God. That Jesus made a way for you to be right with God. But although that would be loving and kind of me, I think to myself, how much more loving and kind is it of God to make a way for us to be right with him? Because the reality is he could have left you to your own demise. He could have left you to try to figure out how to get up the mountain to God. And maybe your way's right, maybe it's not right. Right, but you, you work hard at getting to God. We'll work hard at getting to God. He could have just left us to do that. But the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love towards us. He sent his love from the top of the mountain down to us. And Christ died for our sins so that we could be made right with God, so that there would be a way for us to be right with God. What a loving and gracious father to make a way for us to be right with God. How do we know this claim to be true that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the father except through him? The resurrection. If Jesus had just said these words and stayed in the grave, we could move on from them. But because Jesus rose from the grave, because the resurrection was God's confirmation that Jesus was who he said he was, that God had came and he had made a way through Jesus for us to be right with God. So in Mark chapter 16, when Mark is recording for us the resurrection, he says, as these ladies are coming and there's a man there, he says in verse six, do not be alarmed when they see the stone is rolled away. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. How do we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him? The resurrection proves that. He is the only way to God. He's conquered death and the devil and sin through his resurrection. You know what another proof of the resurrection is? Is that Jesus' closest followers continued to believe what Jesus said about who he was. If you study the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is the story of the spread of the fame of Jesus and the words of Jesus. We, it's the spread of the early church. And you come to this guy, remember Peter, who was asking Jesus where you're going? Peter pops up again. God uses Peter, even though he denied Jesus in, in the process of him being crucified, he repents and returns to Jesus. And he uses Peter in a great way. And Peter's standing before this group of men 
that have the power in, they have the authority and the power to have Peter killed, right? So he's standing before these men and they're, they're questioning him about this Jesus. And at this moment, if you're going to back out of this whole thing, this is a good time to back out, right? When you're standing before these men that they have the power of your life in their hands, Jesus could have backed out and said, you know what? Or Peter could have backed out and said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to go along with this. I'm not going to give my life. But he doesn't back out. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 4 and verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In this moment when Peter could have been like, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm going to move on and just enjoy my life. Peter says, he was right. There is salvation in nobody else's name but Jesus. You know what's interesting about the early church? Christians, like we use that term today, like they're a Christian. In the early church, in the early time, that, that was not a good term. In fact, it was a derogatory term. It's like you're little Christ, like sort of looking down their nose at them. You know, you're just little Jesus is running around. That's the term Christian. Do you, what, do you know what they were really known as? In Acts chapter 9, you find it. In verse 2, Saul, who eventually writes 13 books of the Bible that we have today, he was a persecutor of the church. Saul's going before the same group that Peter was before. And Saul comes before and he says, hey, can I get some rest, arrest warrants for these people? And here's how he refers to them. People of the way. Why were they known as people of the way? John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They were so known by their exclusivity that it was through Jesus that they became known as people of the way. And the resurrection confirmed that Jesus is the way to God. So here's where today and this passage of scripture leads us to. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Can you see that the homesickness you feel in your heart, even when you get everything you want in life, you have all your wants and desires, but there's still this thing missing in your heart. Can you see that Jesus is the cure for that? Do you believe, do you trust, have you put your confidence in the fact that Jesus is the only way to God? One of the early church fathers was a guy by the name of St. Augustine of Hippo. He's from North Africa area. And at the end of 300 to 400 AD, he wrote this statement. Because you, God, have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Your heart will continue to be restless until it finds 
It's rest in Jesus. See, you were made for a person and a place. The person is Jesus and heaven is the place. And today you can find rest for your souls by trusting that Jesus is the only way to God. How do you do that? Listen to Romans 10, 9. If we confess with our mouth, what does it mean to confess? It means I agree with John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart, what do I have to believe in my heart? That God raised him from the dead. That what we're gathered here for today is true. It's not a hoax. It's not some kind of trick that the God of the universe is playing on us and at the end of the day, he's gonna laugh at us because we went along with it. No, but I believe in my heart. I, with full confidence, trust that God raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. And I would invite you right where you're sitting to confess with your mouth, agree with God, and believe in your heart that God was raised from the dead. And today you can deal with that homesickness that you feel in your heart. Jesus is the only person who will ever be able to take care of that homesickness. Then for the believer in the room, here's what I would encourage you with. Live for where you're going, not where you are. Live for where you are going, not where you are. I love that Jesus chose to use this beautiful picture of marriage because what he's saying to these disciples, listen, yes, I'm going to leave you, but keep your eyes on the room that I'm preparing for you and that I'm going to return. Just like the bride, as she would wait for the groom to come back after he's preparing the room, she lived not for where she was. She lived for where she was going to be. She was preparing herself for the groom when he would return to get her. In the book of Revelation, when we're looking to the end of time, in Revelation chapter 19, in verse 7, we see this, what is referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says this, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, who's his bride? The church has made herself ready. One day we'll have a marriage supper and the groom will come and get us and we need to make sure that we're ready for his return. So live for where you are going, not where you are. Here's how Paul would say it to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 16 or chapter 4 verses 16 through 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. Doesn't that sound familiar? Like Jesus let not your hearts be troubled for we do not lose heart, relax. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is what? Preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He said the struggles in our life are not just random things that are happening to us. This is things that God is allowing in our life to prepare us for this eternal weight of glory. And how do we deal with this, Paul? Look into verse 18. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
believer of Jesus, of the way, live for where you are going. Set your eyes on the things that are not seen. Set your eyes on the things that are eternal and know that one day the groom will return for his bride. Father, thank you for your word. One of the things I'm so grateful for your word is the clarity of it. That you can't read John 14, 1 through 6 and wonder what you're thinking. It's clear. It's clear what your plan is for us. It's clear how we should respond to it. And so my prayer today is for those in this room that are, they're maybe, maybe a little bit like Thomas. There's, a, there's these doubts in their heart and soul or maybe even the skeptic in the room today or overflow room. I pray, Lord, that they would take that step of faith, that step of trust, that step of confidence, that they would agree with you that you are the only way to God and they would believe it. They would trust in their hearts that you were raised from the grave. And for those of us that believe it, forgive us, Lord, for living for things that are seen and temporary. Help us, Lord, to live for this prepared place that you're making for us with you forever. Help us to live for the things that are not seen. Help us to live for the things that are eternal. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, thank you uh, for being here today. We are humbled, uh, really, by your presence today. I don't ever want to take for granted that you've chosen in all the churches in the Northland, and there's a lot of great churches in this area, that you would come and spend Easter with us. Thank you for doing that today. When you came in, <coughs> excuse me, you should have received a uh, bulletin. If you would pull that out really quick, just a couple quick things, and then I'll let you go. If you're in our overflow room, if you have a bulletin as well, would you please pull that out? Just a couple things I want to do really quick, and then we'll be done. The first is the bottom part is that of that is a connection card. If you wouldn't mind tearing that off and letting us know you're here today. When you leave in connection, if you leave overflow room, this room, there should be baskets. There's offering boxes. Just drop them in one of the offering boxes or the baskets to let us know that you were here. If you're a guest, we have a gift for you. So make sure you pick that guest gift up in the lobby. Make sure you also swing through and take a picture. We got a photo booth set up in the South lobby. Grab some donuts, some coffee. Um, just take your time. Don't feel like you got to rush out. On the back of that connection card, there's a, a thing that says becoming a Christian. Today, if you made that commitment to the Lord, that step of faith, would you check that? And e here's what, the, even if you didn't, but you're considering it, you're thinking through it, check that box. I'd love to meet with you. Our pastors would love to meet with you and talk through what it means to be a follower of Jesus and this idea that he is the only way to God. So check that box. If there's other things on your heart or mind, um, you can write them there as well. We, we'd love to hear from you. Three things on this, what is happening at Antioch that I want to let you know about. The first is next Sunday, I'm going to start a series called Sexuality in the Gospel. You can't go anywhere in our world, social media, news, out to eat, shopping, school, anywhere you go, sexuality is in your face. And we believe that it's time that we as a church have a talk about what the Bible has to say about sexuality. And so we, we're going to do it in this way. We're going to look at God's grand design God's grand plan 
man's grand fall and God's grand redemption. All right, those are sort of gonna guide our, our thinking. We're gonna look to the Bible, God's grand design, God's grand plan, man's grand fall, and, man, and God's grand redemption. I think it'll be a helpful series us to think biblically about the world that we live in. Also, I want you to know in a couple of Sundays, we're gonna have a first step gathering. This is for those of you that are new to our church um, or your guests today and you're wondering what's going on at Antioch? What's, what's all these people here for? Well, that's what first step is for. We wanna introduce ourselves to you and we wanna get to know you. So please put it on your calendar uh, Sunday. April the 23rd at 4 p.m. And then lastly, on Sunday, April the 30th, our church will celebrate its 60th anniversary as a church family, which is incredible how faithful that God has been for 60 years to our church. And it's gonna be a fun day together. And I know this is probably gonna blow your minds, but we're gonna have one service on that Sunday as you look and there's no seats left. How in the world are we gonna do that? We're gonna have overflows going all over this place, but we're gonna gather as a church family, celebrate God. God's faithfulness. Then afterwards, we're going to eat lunch together. We're going to have blow-ups in the back for the kids to play on. And we're just going to spend time together as a church family on that Sunday. We would love for you to be a part of it, but we need you to sign up because we need to know how many are coming for food so we can be ready for you. So go out to our church website, antiochbbc.org and sign up to be a part of our 60th anniversary celebration. Here's the deal. Before you go, I want you to know today you're not here by accident. Every person that is in this room, every person that is in overflow, you have been prayed for. You have been thought about. And you're not here in this room just because it's a tradition and you have to come because you know grandma's gonna ask you if you came. You're here because God loves you and he has a plan for your life. And I would encourage you, don't let this thing that God's doing in your heart go. Keep wrestling with it because your heart won't find rest until it finds rest in him. He is risen. risen All right, see you next Sunday. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's Antioch bbc.org God's best to you